So thankful for another opportunity to be back at the church tonight. Thankful for the uh, many faces I see out here. So I'm not seeing them in quite a while. Good to see some brothers and sisters. Um, appreciate the hospitality that's been shown. Uh, your pastor and his uh, dear wife have been uh, excellent hosts and have made me feel every comfort and give me every opportunity to study and prepare. And so if I blow it tonight, it is not their fault. Um, appreciate uh, Brother Jeff and Sister Malia and uh, Jacob and getting to go out to eat with them and enjoy a meal together. And uh, I did inquire of your pastor. He was talking about my driving last night, and I was trying for the life of me to remember what exactly it was that I did wrong. And I come to find out that uh, he didn't go to the bathroom before our trip and we got stuck in traffic, and it had absolutely nothing to do with my driving. It, um, so I made sure before we drived home last night that he went to the bathroom. And uh, we got there just fine. So uh, anyway, um, I, got, I did get a little bit nervous a second ago when he was uh, sharing a thought before uh, service. Uh, he was in Acts 17, and I want to go back there again tonight because I didn't uh, get through that message. I don't know that I'll get through it tonight either, and I just want to be obedient to what the Lord would have us uh, day by day, but um, this, this message in the book of Acts is so significant, and uh, as I've just continued to meditate on it, there have just been more things popping out at me, and as I've been kind of asking some questions um, and praying through some of these things, just um, I feel like there's some important things that we need to hear, that um, God's people need to hear, that the lost need to hear. Uh, I mentioned the significance of this sermon that uh, this is probably one of the most complete messages of the Apostle Paul that we have, and he was preaching to Gentiles, not to Jewish people. And so we get to see what Paul said to Gentiles, people who didn't have any reference point of Christianity. And, and how, how do you even begin to make a bridge with these people? Because that's much of the world that we're living in right now. A lot of people just haven't been blessed to have been raised in church, to <clears throat> have heard the Word of God from their youth, or coming into this completely new they're, they're, they have all these thoughts and opinions. There's all sorts of things coming at them in the world. Um, and so you know, how do you reach people like that? And, and praise God. Uh, God called a man and, and saved him and, and called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he was devoted. And the Lord used him in a great way. And God revealed much through him that can be a great blessing to us. You know, fundamentally, we're in a battle of light and darkness. We're, we're in a battle with truth. And if every single one of us here, when we, when we choose to do evil, it's because we don't really believe the truth. I mean, our, what we do is a reflection of what we really think and what we really believe. That's, that's, that's who you are. I mean, what you believe is evidenced by what you do, not by what you say. And when we're talking to those who are lost and, and we, we're trying to convey to them the importance of being saved, it is truly, fundamentally, again, an issue of truth, of, of, of not just in the head, but coming into the heart, that knowledge. I mean, I knew, I was raised in church, I knew the fundamentals of the gospel, and I could recite it to you, but the realities, the things I held in my head had not made their way down into my heart, and I had to come to that place where God made it real and clear to me. And, and so... That's why when, when we're trying to do this work of evangelism, we preach the word. We continue to take the truth and we continue to put it out there and we do it prayerfully, trying to be obedient to the Lord, trying to work in concert with his spirit, who's trying to take this word, this truth, and take it from a head down into a heart. And so here is the Apostle Paul is trying to address these, these people 
um, at Athens on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, a place where they worshipped all these different Greek gods. He saw this altar to the unknown god, and he had this opportunity to address this council of, of men of Athens there at this place. And it was after seeing all those idols and seeing that altar that he began to preach. I'm going to pick up in verse 24 tonight, and I'm going to read again this whole text, but we've already covered part of it, and I'll remind you of some of the high points. It says, God that made the world, Acts 17, 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men and that he hath raised him from the dead. This is a summary of the things the Apostle Paul said. And don't you wish that preachers today could get it over that quick? But, but in those short verses there that we read, the Apostle Paul communicated some amazing and profound truths. He laid out things that they needed to know that took them from a place of, of just ignorance of worshiping idols to a place where they had heard enough truth that if they would hear and perceive and seek after, they could be saved. I mean, he was, he was taking them all the way. And so this, this is a power-packed message here. And, and we talked about last night about how the same things that caused these Athenians in Greece to worship all these gods are the same things we see today. These gods each represented all sorts of things that hold and captivate our attention in our hearts today, whether it be sports or movies or beauty or, or whatever, a success, whatever it might be. These Greek gods represented those things to those people, and they worshiped them just as we worship those things today. And we saw in those verses we covered last night that God is our creator and that he is our Lord. He is, he is in charge of all things. He has never given up any control over all this world, that he is uncontainable. You can't put him in a temple. You can't put him in a box. He doesn't exist solely in your heart, although he can manifest his presence there, nor inside the walls of a church. He's not contained to any of these things. In fact, he's incomparable. There is nothing to which you can compare God even the whole of his creation, as infinite and immense as it is, you cannot look at this whole thing. If you could look at all of it from the macro level down to the microscope and understand our God. He is so much greater than that. And he is independent. He does not need us. We have nothing to offer God, which makes salvation 
so much more profound. It, it just adds depth to the word grace. By, for grace, by grace we're saved through faith. I mean, he doesn't get anything from us. I mean, it is a blessing, a blessing, blessing, blessing that he calls us to himself and has made a way that cost the life of his son that we could even know him. He is an incomparable God, and that was the title of the message I tried to preach last night, was knowing the incomparable God. Tonight I want to talk about knowing the God who is near. Knowing the God who is near, as Brother Derek was, was jumping the gun on me there a little bit, you know, and I was listening to this evening, Brother Corey, one of the songs he sang was about what we were made to, to know God. And, and, and I hope that tonight that you see that with absolute clarity tonight, that you, you were made to know God. That's, that's why you are here. That is what God has been doing this whole time. Whether you've ever realized that or seen that in your life or not, God is moving everything, everything to bring you to a point where you might know him. In verse 25, we're going to pick back up. We talked about uh, uh, some of these other concepts earlier. We, uh, we read last night the first part of verse 25 that he's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. And we talked about that, meaning we don't add anything to God. But we didn't cover this last part of the verse. And it says, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And I, and I just kind of stopped as I was studying that this morning. And I thought about that. What is the Apostle Paul saying when he says he gave us life and he gave us breath and he gave us all things? He formed us in the womb. He's the one who started life back in the garden when he breathed into the nostrils of our first father, Adam. And he breathed life into him. He made Adam unique from all creation, gave him a living soul, and brought him forth from that ground, a man made that he might know and have relationship with God. And he did enjoy that relationship with God back in the garden. So he's the origin of life. But it wasn't just in some far distant past and it just kind of gets passed down. But he is involved intimately with every single one of us. Psalm 139 says, you, were, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That psalm just expounds upon this concept of how God was involved in everything to bring you from the moment you were conceived to coming from the womb. God has given you life. God has done that. So he started you off, didn't he? But not only did he start you off, it says he's given you life and he's given you breath, which comes down to this moment which comes down to right now, your, your lungs bringing in oxygen and exhaling the carbon dioxide, what's happening to every single one of us right now, moment by moment, God is granting you breath. And we take it for granted a lot of times. We go through life and we don't think about how God is keeping us alive. But I tell you, you, you fall into some health issues and you realize pretty quickly how much you depend upon God just to breathe, just to do the basic things. We need him, and so we see that he has created us and that he is supplying our life. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and by him all things consist, meaning he holds us together. Even right now, his power is involved, not just starting the world and winding it up, but keeping it going. And then he just says, and all things. He gives us life. He started you, he initiated you, and he's keeping you going 
And everything you have, everything you have is from God. Nothing is exempted from that statement. It's meant to be very, very broad. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. God doesn't regret. God doesn't change. When he gives, he intends to give. Every good thing in your life, your talents, your abilities, the opportunities you've had, even the difficult things that he's allowed you to pass through in your life, God has been orchestrating and working things in your life. Moment by moment, from the beginning, all things. Job, who experienced great loss in his life, loss of his possessions, loss of his children, said rightly when he heard that news, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognized that all the things in his life were of God. And just as God had given him life and God had given him breath, God had done that for his children and all of his possessions. God did all of that, and Job saw that with clarity. So he is our supplier, and so keep that in your mind. Supplier of life, keeping us going, and everything we have. And he goes on in verse 26 and says, And he's made of, hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. I want to look at that first part where it says he's made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And as I was looking at that passage and I was thinking about that, I asked myself the question, why did Paul need to bring that up to these people? Why why say that? Why is this here? What, What was... The the importance of of telling those people in Athens that God has made all nations of one blood. It occurred to me that the Apostle Paul was going and speaking to these people as a Jew. The Jews had their God. And here he is speaking to Athenians and they had all of these different gods. And and it could kind of beg the question, well, what what does this Jewish person and their God have anything to do with us and our gods? Because people over there worship their gods and people over there do their gods. And, you know, everybody's got all their different gods. What, What Paul is trying to say is that here I am. Yes, I'm a Jew and I'm preaching to a bunch of Gentiles. And he confirms that, you know, we all have the same biological father from Adam. We've all come from the same place. We all have the same flesh and blood. We all have the same issues, the sin issue of Adam, which he didn't bring up here. But he recognizes that covers all of us. But he's telling these people why this message that he's preaching is relevant to them. Because normally they would have just said, look, we're different. We're different. You're a Jew and, and we're not Jews. And that may work for you, but that doesn't work for us. And the Apostle Paul is trying to get them to see past these man-made lines of division that they were drawing that was keeping them from hearing and receiving the truth of God. Do you see how that's relevant to our gospel presentation today? You see, the Apostle Paul was preaching to people who were divided. He was preaching to people who had drawn lines between races and nations and they divided up their gods based upon what God would help who. That's something people had done for hundreds or thousands of years. 
when the Jewish people came into the promised land and they were taking that over, they ran into people who thought, well, maybe the Jews won the battle because, you know, their gods are God of the mountains, but, you know, he can't win a battle down in the plains. And so they thought, well, you know, there's gods of the mountains and there's gods of the plains and gods of this and gods of that, you know, and, and that's how they looked at it. They just said, you're different than us. You're different than us, and that's your thing, and maybe that works for you, but that doesn't work for me because they had drawn these lines and they had all these divisions. But what the Apostle Paul does is he makes this statement that unites all people of every color, every tribe, every social condition under one banner of origin. We're all of one blood, one banner of need. We all need the same thing. We all have the same sin problem. We all have the same calling to repent, and we all have the same hope, which is Jesus. He's relevant to every single one of us, no matter of any of those things. And I'll tell you, I want to kind of just veer for a second, that we have to be careful as God's people to not let those inconsequential divisions creep into the church and undermine the gospel. It becomes a gospel issue. Because we start to divide ourselves up in different, uh, different parties and things of all these different natures and, and, and make these constructs we call race when we're really we're all one race. We have different skin colors, but there's one race. It's called the human race. And we divide ourselves up based upon who has this and who has that and who went where and yeah, I went to Purdue and you went to IU and who cares? Because people at Purdue need Jesus just as much as people at IU. People who went to college need Jesus just as much as people who don't want to go to college. People from Indiana need Jesus just as much as people from Tennessee, just as much as people in Indonesia, just as much as people anywhere, everywhere. None of that matters. We draw lines, and the Lord is telling us, look, he's made us all of one blood, and he has given the blood of his son to take care of the blood of all. When Jesus brought his apostles together. What's interesting is he took men of diverse backgrounds to become building blocks of his New Testament church. Fishermen, a tax collector, and there were a couple that were called zealots. That was a, a political party. They were the ones who wanted to take Israel back to power by force. Okay? They were the first ones to want to call for a revolt. I mean, that was politically how they were affiliated, and others were not necessarily of the same political persuasion as them. And Jesus started that early church with people who had economic diversity and political diversity, and soon after his death and his burial and resurrection, and he ascended to heaven, there was the day of Pentecost where he started this ball rolling that would take the gospel out beyond ethnic lines, from the Jews to the Samaritans, and then ultimately to the whole world, right? Jesus was wanting to obliterate those lines of division, my uh, oldest son, Josiah, just got back from Jamaica, and he was down there with uh, Brother Scott Carter, uh, Dr. Mike Collins, which is why Josiah wanted to go, is to work with Dr. Mike, um, and helping uh, with the clinic. And uh, Brother Tom Alande and Sister Sarah Alande, some of you all know them, they are Kenyans, and he is a pastor uh, of a church there, and they have a school, and they have mission works, and God has blessed them. Of course, being from Kenya... They're black. 
You say, well, why would they go to Jamaica? What's the point of Brother Tom and Sister Sarah going to Jamaica? Well, as uh, over the years, as Brother Rick Jones and others have done work down there, one of the things that they've heard in response to their preaching is this is a white man's religion. This is a white man's religion. And so very wisely, Brother Tom has gone down there and done a lot of preaching for the purpose of people saying that this is not about the color of your skin. This is about being of one blood and having one Savior who has died for us all to take care of all of us. When I went down to uh, Huntingdon to pastor this church, um, I, I have a church of political diversity, uh, more than I've ever, um, maybe not more than I've ever experienced. I had a lot of that in Alaska, but it, it's, it's more pronounced um, down in Huntingdon. And people are a certain party because that's what their families have been historically. But what I found is that when we sit down and talk about doctrinal issues, and I've sat down with somebody who has different political opinions than I have on some issues, and we're talking about our articles of faith and wanting to expand those to include a statement about the sanctity of human life and to talk about marriage being between a man and a woman and all of those things, I found this brother to be in absolute, complete lockstep with me. Even though we may be politically on other sides of the aisle and view some things a bit differently, when it, came to the, it comes to the gospel and the essential doctrines of the church, we were bound hand in hand. And I know down there it's caused some stir at times because of political issues and people doing this and people doing that and getting upset. But as I've thought about that, I've come to the personal conviction that that is actually a strength of our church. You may not view it that way, but I look at this diversity as being a strength of our church because we're not looking to find our hopes in anything that any political party can do in this country because our citizenship is in heaven and our hope is in Jesus Christ. And whatever may happen in this world, and so we all have opinions and things that we would desire to see this or that that we think may be best. But this has kept us from looking to the world for our hope and our solution, but instead trying to look to Christ. And I really believe that our differences that we can have in a congregation, and every congregation can have differences. These things can be our strength. These things can be our absolute strength if they cause us to lean into the gospel and the truth and into the church rather than leaning into worldly solutions. The Bible says that we will be known by our love for one another. And you can only get to show love if not everybody's lovable. Right? I mean, if everybody's easy to love, Jesus says that's what the Gentiles do. Everybody loves people that love them. But it's when everybody is not exactly the same and doesn't look at everything exactly the same way or have the same thing or whatever, and love can still abound, that that love truly has to become something special. It has to come from God because that's not, what happening. That's not what is happening in our world, is it? I mean, we're getting all broken up in all pieces, but when God's people can come together and we have these essential things the same, that requires a special love of God. It requires us to truly lean into the spirit of God. And that's going to be noticeable when people walk in and go, "Woo! everybody's not the same here, but wow, there's love. There's love. That's going to be a witness. 
You know, some folks say, well, I just want the church to feel like home. I do too. My heavenly home. I want it to feel like my heavenly home. Where every tribe, race, color, gathers around singing praise to God with no division, but with hearts that are simply focused on magnifying him. I want God's church to feel like home. Jesus is for everybody, and everybody needs Jesus. And so I think it was important the Apostle Paul made that statement, don't you? That he's made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he goes on here, and he says in verse 26, And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord... We see in that end part of verse 26, the Apostle Paul is making a statement that God has guided human history. He has guided the events, the times of things that happen. He's even controlled who is where and when and all the different things that are going on. He's controlling times and he's controlling the bounds of where people live. Why? Why? We come with this profound statement that, verse 24, for the purpose that they should seek the Lord. There's a lot to that, but let me start by just saying, to be as clear as I can, that God has guided the events of human history to bring about and to broadcast the gospel message. Do you understand that? God has guided the events of human history to bring about and to broadcast the gospel message. If we were to go through the pages of the Old Testament and read some of that history, we would see that God called a man, Abraham, Abram at the time, and he called him to become a nation. And he promised him, he said, look, if you will follow me, I will bless every nation through your descendants. To one man, he made this promise, I will bless every nation through your descendants. And we see through the story of Abram and his life and all the ups and downs that he faced, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, that in just a few generations, God took one man and turned him into a nation. That nation we know is the nation of Israel. And there are actually some more peoples that came off of Abram, but the people that of promise were the Israelites. And once they had become a nation, even though they had become enslaved down in Egypt, God birthed them and brought them forth from that place and brought them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And there God said, if you will follow me, if you will do what I say, I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'm going to give you a special manifestation of myself. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to pour out truth upon you. And they said, we're going to do it. And so God first gave them those Ten Commandments that he received at Mount Sinai. You all know, or at least are familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? It breaks down like this. The first four are essentially about loving God, and the last six are about learning to love other people. That's a summary of the Ten Commandments. And he gave them much more than that as well and told them at that point how they were to come before him and worship him. He gave them all of these things. And through the ups and downs of that nation, because they couldn't keep it all, they messed up, they failed left and right. But through all those years... God kept his promises to them. He humbled them. He brought them down. 
He brought them up as they return and repent, but he never let them go, and he kept every single promise. And even when they were living under oppression, the Bible says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of woman, made under the law, under that law of Mount Sinai. That statement, and the fullness of time was come, indicates that God, through all of those ages, was doing something. Think about a woman being pregnant, and and for nine months she is carrying that that child going from conception to being ready to be birthed. And all that time, though many other things are going on around her and in her, her body is about bringing forth that child when it is the right time. And the Lord is revealing to us all this time, I've been working to bring forth this moment to bring forth my son. And he certainly did. And Jesus was everything God promised he would be. He fulfilled every single promise. He was perfect. He was the righteous, true lamb of God. He did exactly what the father said. He died on that cross. He was buried. But just as the father said, he rose again that third day and he reigns with the father right now. Jesus was everything that God had said he would be. It was worth the wait. But God did not stop his intervention in human history when Jesus was born. But he was continuing to move to bring forth the fullness of the gospel in Jesus. And now once this message came forth, once Jesus had come and done all this, it was time from going from birthing the gospel to broadcasting the gospel. And we see that God had already been working in human history to make these things happen. When the Greeks took over uh, much of the known world at that time, one of the things that they did was they standardized the language of the people, that everybody had to learn Greek. And maybe not everybody learned it, but it became the international trade language. And so while Alexander was focused on and thinking that he was about trying to to hold on to his empire and those who came after him trying to hold on to it by making everybody speak the same language, God had something else going on. Because it would be in that language that all these different nations knew that the Lord would allow his word to be recorded so that this gospel could easily spread everywhere. And then the Romans took over and they were the ones who were in charge when Jesus was around. And when they were trying to roll out their massive war machine, they started building roads everywhere so they could quickly get their armies to these distant places and exercise control and hold on to their dominion. And they thought what they were trying to do was to conquer the known world at that time. But what they didn't know was that God was moving the hearts of kings and controlling the bounds of human history so that when this gospel was birthed and it could be passed along in a language that everybody could understand, people could go on the roads, missionaries could go on the roads and take this gospel all sorts of places in relatively quick time. You see, God was moving in human history to birth the gospel and then to broadcast the gospel. Men thought all these other things were going on and God is saying, I have got this under control. I know what I'm doing. And my friends, that has not stopped today. And we look around us and we see chaos and we want to see things go this way and we want to see things go that way because we think we know the best way that everything should be. And God is still in control. And God's purpose and God's plan is the same. He wants to get the gospel out to people. That is why he's doing what he's doing. And I don't understand all of the whys. But his purpose has not changed. 
The earth turns. Why? Well, Peter said the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some may count slackness, but he's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Life is still going on. The Lord has not come back yet because the Lord wants people to be saved. That's why he's not come back yet. He's wanting to give people opportunity. And he's been working and moving in human history to be able to get the word out. He's called and commissioned his church. That was the last thing Jesus did before ascending. Was he, he gave them this great commission and told them to take this to the farthest reaches of the world. I spent 22 years in Alaska. Alaska, I never dreamed I would live in Alaska. I had never been to Alaska before I visited there back in 1999. It wasn't even on my bucket list. I did it to go see some friends and try to encourage them. I mean, God had other purposes and reasons. Why? Because he wants the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth. God has blessed our nation and allowed us to be a light for a time. And I believe one of the grand purposes behind that is the missionary movement that God has blessed coming forth from our country. And now we're not always exporting the best things anymore. We're exporting a lot of our values, which have become corrupted in this country. But I don't want us to lose sight of the good that God has done from this place. And why? Why did God bless America? I believe his grand purpose remains in all of these things because he wants to get his word out there. And no matter what happens to us in our country, and I know we love to see things turn around and get much better, but regardless of what happens in our country, God's kingdom is going to continue to advance and his purposes will remain. He is not held back by how our votes turn out in our country. That does not stop him a bit. They will remain. And so many times when everything seemed like chaos, God knew exactly what he was doing. All of Paul's points that he's been making here, that God is your supplier. He's given you life and he's giving you breath right now and he's given you all things that you have, including this opportunity to be here and hear this message. The fact that God has set times and bounds, that he's made us all of one blood. All of these things are what? So that people might seek the Lord. That is why I want you to see tonight. I want you to see tonight, if you don't know Christ, that all of human history has been moving to bring you this opportunity this evening for no other reason than that you might know Jesus Christ. Amen. Human history. God has orchestrated that, that you might have this opportunity. And as, as easy as it is for us to get disheartened in the work of evangelism, I was so blessed by the testimony Brother Corey shared tonight. I mean, God has not been stopped. God is still saving souls. God is working and moving and orchestrating, even in a dog getting a tumor, to bring somebody to salvation. God is moving, and he, his purposes will not change until he returns, and he says it's over. And that's a real thing, but we're not there yet in this message. But we see in verse 27, this God that is moving all of these things, that people should seek the Lord. It says, if happily, if perhaps they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You are called to seek him, but he's not far from you. He's a God who's near. He's a God who's near. And, and what I want to do here as we, as we focus in on this verse is we've been talking about how God has moved all of human history to do all of these things. And so that can seem really, really big to us. But what the Apostle Paul does right here is that he brings it home to you. Though he be not far from every one of us. This brings this home to you tonight. God is speaking to you as an individual. And the Apostle Paul is telling you tonight, lost friend, because you're one of those everyone, that God is near you. God is close to you. In fact, he kind of hits some of these same points that he has already made. He says, for in him we live and we move and we have our being, right? He's like every moment, this breath, every movement of your life, your very existence is held together by God. He's bringing it right back home to you. And I know, have no doubt tonight that there are lots of testimonies of people out here that you could share who've been saved. You can talk about how personally in your life God worked to bring you to that place. There were things that he did, people he put in your way that spoke to you, that prayed for you, events that occurred in your life, whatever the case might be, something God was doing personally to you in your life to bring you to that place where you might humble yourself, where you might seek the Lord, and where you might be saved. And God did the same thing for me. When I was 18 years old, and even though I had prayed many times and not found what I needed. God used my failures, my faults, coming to grips with the fact that I really, really was a sinner that deserved to go to hell to bring me to a place of brokenness where I was able to surrender to him knowing that I could not save myself. You see, again, it was a truth issue. I had known all my life, had been taught from a child that, that I couldn't save myself and that I needed to go to Christ and I needed to turn away from self-trust and I needed to, to put my faith in Jesus. But, but when it really came down to it, I'll tell you who James Keene was. He was the preacher's kid who was at every service and he saw the other kids that came in and weren't there as much as he was. In fact, as he got older, he knew what a lot of those other kids were doing on the weekends or things that they were saying and that they weren't good things. And James, inside of himself, had a lot of judgmental thoughts about all of them. And James got very frustrated when he saw some of these other kids that didn't hardly ever come to church and they'd go and they'd seek the Lord and they'd get saved. And I'm like, I'm the kid who comes every time. I'm the kid who's always there. I'm the kid, you know, my parents didn't let me go and do bad things. I didn't have a chance to get in trouble. And I got really frustrated because why could they be saved and not me? I mean, look at who I am. 
Look at who I am. And then I go off to college my freshman year, and God shows me who I am. And I came to a place where I realized that if I didn't have God in my life, if God didn't come in and change who I was, my life was going to go in a very dark direction. And it scared me to death because I knew where that was headed, and I found in me absolutely no power to be able to overcome those things. My life was getting darker and darker and darker, and for the first time in my life, I not only knew that I was going to go to hell if I died, I knew I deserved to go to hell if I died. And there's a huge difference. You see, I, I would have said to you, oh yeah, I deserve to go to hell, but in my heart of hearts, I didn't really believe it. I didn't really believe that. I thought that I was a good kid. But the Lord brought me to a place to see that I was not who I thought I was and that I was truly just like everybody else. I was absolutely a complete sinner that needed salvation. And that night when I was at the end of myself and I looked to Christ, he took that burden and he gave me peace. And it's as simple as that. It was just a moment when it happened, and it was just the burden was just gone. I didn't see lights. I didn't get up and rejoice. I didn't do any of those things. In fact, it really confused me because I expected more than I got, but what God gave me was good enough. And it was simply that peace of God. That burden was just gone. And I remember sitting there in that peace and just thinking, I have never felt this peaceful before, and I just want to sit here for a moment and just rest in it, <laughs> to just rest in this place. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful that God used even my failures to bring me to that place and he had been working on me for so long. You see, it was very personal to me and, and ever since then as a child of God, God has worked in my life in infinitely more ways to show his love to me. And I couldn't even begin to tell you how many ways God has shown his love to me and worked in my life, even when I struggle with believing that he could love me. But he has not failed to do so. Friend, nobody in this room knows you like Jesus. Nobody knows you like Jesus. He knitted you together in the womb. He is giving you breath right now. He is planting seeds of truth in your heart and watering with, them, with his spirit. He is working right now to draw you to himself. He's been working through human history to do that. And he's been working in your life to do that. I hope he's working right now in you to do that. To move you to that place where you might humble yourself and be saved. My friend, I want you to understand tonight if you're lost and you feel that separation, you know, that burden. And, and nobody likes that. It feels absolutely horrible. It feels uncomfortable because you know things aren't right and your soul is troubled and you want to explain it away. You want to push it back. You want to ignore it. You want to go to the bathroom. You want to distract yourself with anything else. But you need to deal with this. What I want you to know, my friend, is that Jesus knows how you feel right now. You say, well... How does Jesus know how I feel right now? I mean, he was perfect. He's, he's God. How did Jesus know how I feel right now? Jesus knows the weight of your sin. That's what you're feeling, by the way. You're feeling the weight of your sin. Most of the time we walk around blind to it. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means you can't see it. You're not looking through that window. But when God's spirit comes and starts to shine the light through that window that you're not used to looking through, you realize that 
that it's dark, that it's black, that it's sinful, and, and, it's, and it's crushing inside you, and you just want the light to stop coming in through that window because you want to pretend that that's just a wall and not a window. But it's always there. But I tell you, Jesus knows exactly how you feel because he carried your sin to the cross. Your shame, your shame, those things that you feel, Jesus is intimately familiar with that. When he was speaking to his father in the garden and he was praying, if there's any other way, the father clearly said by his actions, there is no other way. And Jesus drank of that cup of the wrath of God. Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin so that we might experience the righteousness of God. He knows that feeling of separation from God because on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He experienced all this. In fact, he experienced the full, not just the feeling of separation you feel right now, he experienced the full wrath of God and punishment for your sins on that cross and things that were going on inside him that we cannot even understand. It was even more than we can see happening on that cross. Jesus knows your sin. And what you need to know is his peace. And I'll tell you, one of the most profound things I ever realized was that peace that I felt on that night when the Lord saved me. That's the peace between Jesus and his Father. That's the peace that Jesus got to live in every day in that perfect communion. Because in that moment, he took away my sin and he gave me his righteousness, which allowed me to feel that peace, a peace with God that I'd never felt before. <laughs> that was the peace of Christ. And that's a piece, if you're saved, that you still have. That's a piece of relationship with God that you're never going to lose. And one day we'll be able to behold him. Friends, everything in your life has been drawing you to this moment. Everything in human history has been drawing you to this moment. And God is near to every one of you. And his instruction is to feel after him. That perhaps tonight you might find him. Today is the day of salvation. Today could be the day where you see the purpose in your own life of all the days of human history. Would you realize that tonight? Would you seek the Lord with the weight of all of that upon you, behind you, and would you go to the God who wants to save you tonight? As we have a song this evening, seek Jesus Christ while he may be found. He is near.